Chapter Ten of Ghosts of Piccadilly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The Ghosts of Piccadilly by G. S. Street. Chapter Ten. The Great Duke. My concern with the Duke of Wellington is not as he moved in battle or the council chamber, but in drawing rooms and dining rooms and the public street as he appeared to his friends, and others who sought him in Apsley House, or to the world at large as he rode or walked in Piccadilly. I am concerned to picture him, if I may, in his habit as he lived familiarly. Even so, I might well be fearful that the range of my local theme had brought me to a point where I had best make a silent reverence and pass on. The weight of so forceful a tradition as this lies heavy on one still. This man has stood to England as a very incarnation of eminence and greatness, and in truth he was, in character as in achievement, emphatically and beyond question, a great man. O oh, civic muse, to such a name, to such a name for ages long, to such a name, preserve a broad approach of fame and ever-echoing avenues of song. But who am I that I should gossip of him in conversational prose? Well, he comes into the subject I have chosen, and would have been the last man living to be patient with me if I stand niggling before it. I can say that whether or no I interest my readers in my view, at least I am profoundly interested myself. One word of the background. The first known occupant of the site of Apsley House was, appropriately enough, an old soldier, named Allen, to whom, so tradition goes, George the Second gave a piece of ground at Hyde Park Corner, having recognised him as an old acquaintance of Dettingen, of which battle George was not unreasonably proud. Allen's wife kept a stall here, and when Lord Chancellor Apsley, afterwards Lord Bathurst, started building in 1771, from designs by the Adams, she brought an action against him, and forced him to compensate her handsomely. It was unkindly said to be a suit between two old women. That is all the pre-Wellington history of Apsley House. The Duke enlarged it, and cased the old house, which was of red brick, with bath stone. I will not cavil at his taste. It was characteristic of him to be enchanted with his possessions, and his opinion of this result was extremely high. At any rate, he could hardly have had his dwelling on a more delightful spot, parked on two sides, and in his day with a much more open run than now, to Kensington. Number one, London, was then an appropriate description of it. Let us look hard at the Duke in the mind's eye. Happily in this case the light is good, for we have portraits and minute descriptions, and the memory of living men. The late Duke of Argyll, who went to call on him at Apsley House in 1847, tells us that, what struck one most in his appearance was not his high aquiline nose, which is so prominent in all the pictures, but his splendid eyes. They were blue in colour, and very round and very large, the eyelids cutting across them very high up, but not leaving them uncovered. They arrested all one's attention in a moment. One thought no more of the beaky nose or of the small and firm mouth. I do not remember any other description that insists so exclusively on his eyes, but with a copy of the engraving after Lawrence before me as I write, I can well believe in it. Splendid, forthright, well-opened eyes they are. 
with the fine prominence of their own quality, not at all protruding. Blue, simply says the Duke of Argyll. A dark violet blue or grey, says Mr. Gleig, his biographer. Exact agreement about eyes is rare to find, but a deep blue we may take there to have been. Then, of course, there is the aquiline nose, beaky, even too beaky, on a mean face, but merely giving point and command to his. The eyebrows straight and thick, but not bushy. The forehead almost low, but broad and square. The mouth small, a little tight at the corners. The jaw strong, the chin prominent and firm. A grave expression habitually, a winning smile on occasion. He was five feet nine inches high, very erect, at least until his latter years, when observers differ. Probably he bore himself like a soldier still by instinct, and drooped in inattention. He was broad-shouldered and deep-chested, with finely made hands and feet. Then you must regard his dress. Probably Thackeray in Pendennis, you remember, when he stops to speak to the Major walking with Pen, describes him as he was most familiar to Londoners. In a blue frock-coat and spotless white duck trousers, in a white stock, with a shining buckle behind. Mr. Gleig adds to this, as his civilian dress in summer, a low-crowned narrow-brimmed hat and a white waistcoat. In winter the hat and stock and frock-coat remained the same, but the trousers were blue, and blue or red the waistcoat. Sir William Fraser tells us that the hat had a very clean lining of pale yellow leather. I like to think of Sir William taking it up in the hall, and making his note on it. He confuses us a little about the trousers. Surely this does not bore you? With the statement that they were of Oxford mixture, except on the 1st of May, when they were white. I believe he is wrong, but forgive him for the knowledge that the Duke always carried two cambric pocket handkerchiefs. You are watching the Duke in Piccadilly, and you are to add to your observation the curiosity and deep respect with which all his fellow citizens regarded him in passing. Penn, for example, on the occasion I have quoted, was in ecstasy over the encounter. The Duke gave the elder Pendennis a finger of a pipe-clayed glove to shake, which the Major embraced with great veneration, and all Penn's blood tingled as he found himself in actual communication, as it were, with this famous man. For Penn had possession of the Major's left arm, whilst that gentleman's other wing was engaged with his grace's right and he wished all Greyfriars School, all Oxbridge University, all Paternoster Row and the Temple, and Laura and his mother at Fair Oaks, could be standing on each side of the street to see the meeting between him and his uncle and the most famous Duke in Christendom. A friend of mine remembers seeing the Duke in 1851, the year of the exhibition, and the year before his death, cantering along Piccadilly on a small white cob, upright in the saddle, with his cane held to his hat in salute, and the people uncovering as to royalty. Even the late Duke of Argyll felt diffident and nervous when, as a young man, he went to ask a favour of the venerable hero. He takes us with him, by the way, into Apsley House, into a large room on the ground floor to the eastern side of the Piccadilly front. It was full of articles in much confusion, of writing-tables with blue books, of articles of clothing hung on screens, and of furniture with no definite arrangement. The Duke presently entered by a side door. 
and what manner of man truly and intimately was it behind the white stock and the blue frock-coat had we been present invisible at this interview we should have heard him putting his nervous visitor at ease giving sound advice on the matter in question readily promising his aid yes but the duke of argyle was of his own class and society it is certain that he lived by choice almost exclusively in that class even his biographer mr gleig again admits that the circle in which he chiefly moved was that of fashionable ladies and gentlemen who pressed themselves upon him it is said that he liked their flattery which is true to some extent no doubt and it is hinted that he was something approaching to a snob which is ridiculous he was born in that class he had a strong sense of caste which in his time was a reality and he was most at home in it that is all but it is curious to note the different reports of him from those in and outside it when we have allowed for the immense prestige of him from waterloo onwards we still must think there was something of superficial coldness and aloofness in his personality to leave so much in awe in the minds of those who merely spoke with him as it were at a distance and then turn for contrast to his letters to dearest georgie the late lady de ross who died a nonagenarian and was one of his girl favourites about the romping at mont saint martin the men harnessed and dragging the ladies about on rugs the night before the ladies drew me the petit tour and afterwards lord hill the grand tour but the fat fair and forty and m was so knocked up that some of us were obliged to go into the harness although we had already run many stages or follow him through lady granville's letters the duke as merry as a grig the bonhomie and adorable qualities of the duke the duke acting in charades or the poor beau his significant nickname is much hurried being considered to go along with favours and cakes when a tory marries and so forth and then my mind goes back to hayden's account of him at walmer reading the paper after dinner while the painter sat gazing at his grey head in silent reverence admiring him as something near divine again the popular tradition of him much supported by evidence is of a stern man something hard curt a foe to emotion even some of those who knew him more or less familiarly report him blunt matter-of-fact and if not unfeeling certainly this side of sensibility there is thomas creevey's interview with him in brussels immediately after waterloo he made a variety of observations in his short natural blunt way but with the greatest gravity all the time and without the least approach to anything like triumph or joy it has been a damned serious business he said blucher and i have lost thirty thousand men it has been a damned nice thing the nearest run thing you ever saw in your life by god i don't think it would have done if i had not been there that is not exactly unfeeling and it is thoroughly of his nation and his class in its sporting metaphor and its plain statement one admires the absence of personal triumphing on the one side of false modesty on the other but one misses the imaginative feeling for the horror of all that slaughter well it merely was not for mr creevey we know from rakes that when at this same time the duke went to the rooms of his niece lady fitzroy somerset he burst into a flood of tears when mrs arbuthnot his most intimate friend among women died he was called unfeeling because as charles greville says 
he had the good taste and sense to smooth his brow and go to the house of lords with a cheerful aspect but we know how he could feel the death of a friend he who sat with the tears streaming down his cheeks at the funeral service for abuthno we know too from gleig how when that friend's fatal illness was told to him he seized the doctor's hand and protested brokenly no no he's not very ill not very bad he'll get better he'll not die one remembers these and many stories like them and one looks at the portrait and one sees surely that those eyes and that mouth are not of an unfeeling man very greatly otherwise it is no wild guess that this was a man who felt both strongly and readily and living in high places with curious eyes ever on him had the habit of cloaking his feelings as best he might many appeals to feeling were not for him of course he was blind to art and books also that too is in the eyes he was proud and by nature contemptuous of what to him was little those were intellectual limitations to feeling when the passage was clear there was no hard substance of nature to check it and if one thinks of his pride of class of his contempt for the mob one should remember some facts about him and it all his life he had done his duty to his country single-heartedly with immense personal success to be sure but also with much hardship and strain of energies and in the teeth of calumny in eighteen thirty one he was honestly opposed to reform the king was to dissolve parliament but the duke could not go to the house of lords because his wife was dying in apsley house she died as the guns in the park began to fire and presently came a yelling crowd before apsley house and in a while stones crashing through the windows breaking them in pieces and destroying pictures within what wonder that he kept the iron shutters to his windows to the day of his death twelve years later an immense mob cheering this time followed him up constitution hill the duke took no notice whatever but trotted leisurely to apsley house then he stopped at the gate pointed to those iron shutters bowed to the mob and silently rode into the court he was not a democratic politician remember also that if he despised the common man he was punctiliously courteous to him no great man ever took so much trouble about small men as he those innumerable autograph letters beginning f m the duke of wellington presents his compliments to mr buggins or master brown or what not his peculiar humour half playful half grim no doubt made him sometimes rejoice in his answers Field-Marshal the Duke of Wellington has received a letter from Mr. Tompkins stating that the Marquis of Douro is in debt to his mother, Mrs. Tompkins. The Duke of Wellington is not the Marquis of Douro. The Duke regrets to find that his eldest son has not paid his washerwoman's bill. Mrs. Tompkins has no claim upon the Duke of Wellington. The Duke recommends her, failing another application, to place the matter in the hands of a respectable solicitor. In this case he was hoaxed. Mr. Tompkins, the distressed washerwoman's son, was a collector of autographs, and of course he was often hoaxed over his charities, which were large and incessant. He admitted once that an officer of the Mendicity Society had given him the severest scolding he had ever had in his life. If he despised common people, he never pandered to great personages. It was to the credit of George the Fourth that he always had a great respect for the Duke, whom he called Arthur. It is not much to the discredit of the Duke 
that he had little or no respect for George the Fourth, of whom he once told Creevey, condemning the regent's bulk and blasphemy in pretty forcible language of his own, that he was ashamed to enter a room with him. And he told Lady de Ross that when George and Charles the Tenth were together, George, with his flourish and display, might have passed for his valet. I must not repeat stories at large, but if the reader has not heard it, this one, it is irrelevant, I know, helps to fix the Duke's manner and humour. "'Were you surprised at Waterloo, Duke?' asked some fool at a dinner. "'No,' with his charming smile, "'but I am now.' And now I come to what, after all, is most to the purpose in my sketch of the Duke in his social side, his relations with women. He was susceptible, as it used to be called, in an extreme degree, and like most susceptible people he was inconstant. His marriage was finely characteristic. The lady's family disapproved of the engagement, and he, serving abroad, had not seen her for years. She suffered disfigurement from the smallpox, and wrote to release him. Whatever the sentimental traditions of romance might require, I fancy that most men, given the circumstances, would have acquiesced in their freedom. But though another person might release Arthur Wellesley from a promise, he could not release himself. He returned to England, and married the lady, and they lived unhappily, more or less, ever after. I hope that this conduct may balance in my moralising reader's mind something at least of conduct that he will condemn. I believe that most of the Duke's intimacies with women were innocent. He was soft about them, was amused by them, liked to indulge them. But there is no use in pretending that he thought much of chastity, or that his life was chaste. We will not pursue an argument which might annoy the reader, and to me would be stupid and tiresome. As we study great men of the active and commanding sort in history, we find that most of them seem not to have been naturally monogamous. If we must judge, we should judge comparatively. Our modern habit of reticence and silence has induced a false perspective. That is all I feel disposed to say. The great duke got himself into little scrapes, no doubt whatever. He never escaped the consequences of a fault by committing what he would have considered a greater one. We know the famous answer to the threat of exposure. Publish and be damned! In the year 1825 there were published the memoirs of Harriet Wilson, a celebrated courtesan. Walter Scott notes the occurrence in his journal, and says it had kept the gay world in hot water. He recollects having met Miss Wilson, and congratulates himself that her memory was not so good as his. It is, I must confess, a most amusing book, written really, I suppose, by some hack of letters, from Harriet's confidences and suggestions, but its attempts at pathos and sentiment are exceedingly nauseous. The Duke figures largely in it. In 1816, Lady Frances Webster, Byron's old friend, was accused by one Baldwin of misconduct with the Duke. She prosecuted for libel and got £2,000 damages, but I fear the world must have smiled. There were other scrapes, but I am sure it was softness and kindness, not libertinism, which most often involved him. Lady Caroline Lamb, also Byron's old friend, set her cap at him in 1815. "'Nothing is agissant,' writes Lady Granville from Paris, but Caroline William in a purple riding habit, tormenting everybody, 
but i am convinced ready primed for an attack upon the duke of wellington and i have no doubt but that she will to a certain extent succeed as no dose of flattery is too strong for him to swallow or her to administer there it was you see he had this reputation for softness and accessibility to women once when he left woburn prematurely on the plea of cabinet business in london the indignant duchess of bedford wrote after him dear duke for cabinet read boudoir yours g b yes i fear he had this reputation charles greville who knew him well and whose brother algernon was his secretary for thirty-five years writing about his intimacy with madame grassini adds that these habits of female intimacy and gossip led him to take a great interest in a thousand petty affairs in which he delighted to be mixed up and consulted a pity perhaps that he so wasted valuable time but i do not think there was much harm in it all and what return did women make him for all his interest and devotion one of low degree made copy out of him as we have seen another of high degree according to sir william fraser but then sir william was wrong about the trousers threatened him with an action but on the good side i suppose duke said a woman to him once you have inspired a great deal of admiration and enthusiasm among women during your life oh yes plenty of that plenty of that but no woman ever loved me never in my whole life it is a sad commentary on all the stories and scandals likely as not he spoke the truth for the duke's nature was above all things masculine one of which that very softness about women is an indication and masculine men when they achieve great things before the world have as he said admiration and enthusiasm from women in plenty but women are fond of men most commonly as i believe for weaknesses they understand and share i may be wrong and i rather fear to pursue the analysis let us hope the duke was deceived i was the only thing he ever loved said the complacent lady jersey after his death let us hope that somewhere or other lived a woman who might have said the converse so we see the great duke as he was for his chosen friends gay affectionate generous loving a simple joke loving flattery a little overmuch loving women a few too many we may fancy him in his dining-room at apsley house courteous talking freely without the least preoccupation with his own reputation or position downright prejudiced and to the best of his understanding just we may follow him in his daily habits methodical simple temperate and withal hearty we may imagine him with strangers and slight acquaintances punctilious humorous a little oddly blunt and grim at times and thanks to painted and written records we see him vividly all the time and so we part with him but piccadilly has a memory of him other than of the living man a great memory of one of the two great funeral processions of our time a vast and reverent crowd the strains of the dead march and more solemn than all else the silent tramp tramp of his soldiers the end of chapter ten